This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Hi, this is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick international thrillers and this is the taylor stevens show with my good friend steve campbell where we are kicking riding in the butt one word at a time now did you stumble between kick and ass or was that a a glitch in the in the recording because it sounded like <laughs> kick uh, I, ass i'm gonna guess it was a glitch in the recording <laughs> okay. you, know, I thought you can't you possibly be stumbling over this after five years or six years or however oh, yes many. No, trust me, I can stumble over it after all that time. Just not in that particular instance. <laughs> well, we have another cat story today. But before we get to that, I have to tell you how excited I am because I think this is the second time in the history of the show where Taylor tells me what the topic is and says, and I have a title. And I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so as I'm sure you've read, it's chapters, scenes, and in-betweens, which I absolutely love. But before we get to that, Yay. you got a new toy yes. for the cat. Yeah, so um, <laughs> for Christmas, somebody gave me one of those automatic laser cat eye things that, you know, you just set it and then it, you know, runs its little routine for like 15 minutes. And some of those toys are a little more high-end. and and you turn them on sort of permanently and they'll run for 15 minutes and then shut off for like an hour and a half and then turn themselves back on. And the reason behind the shutting off is so that, you know, you don't overstimulate the cats or whatever. This thing, unfortunately, does not have the ability to turn itself back on. It's a one and done thing. And I say unfortunately because Leo. <laughs> who is my cat, obviously, my little rescue kitten. He loves the laser eyes. I mean, I, I've told stories before about how he knows when you're picking up the pen that has the laser on and wherever he is, if he sees you even get close to that pen, he'll come running. He will come touching you, trying to get you to, to use the pen, whatever. So he has this thing. He's He loves to play. He loves to chase. and he's crazy about this toy so much so that he'll come crying to you asking you to turn it on because he wants to play with it and so the the first night or two that it was here he didn't let me sleep he kept coming in and waking me up crying walking all over me putting his face in my face pawing at my face to get me to wake up <laughs> and go turn the toy on for him because he wanted to play with it. And I thought after the first night, okay, he'll get used to it. He'll stop. But no, it went on for a second night. And then I was like, okay, this is insane. And I had to go lock the, put put the toy where he couldn't see it, hoping that he would ignore it and stop make, waking me up. And he, he still kept waking me up for a couple more nights until he just finally realized that, it wasn't going to happen. And 
I think it is both adorable and terrifying. <laughs> like he's so smart and he knows how to communicate and he's trained me very well. You know, cat has trained human, but also, you know, I need to sleep and I had to lock him out of the bedroom. And he finally learned that crying in the night is a good way to not get to sleep on my bed. And so he has settled down. But wow. <laughs> and so I'm tempted to go buy one of those toys that will turn itself back on again. But I don't know. Right now we're we're okay with what we have. So yes. It's the latest adventures in being a cat owner. It's astonishing how much the cat sounds like a four-year-old boy. Yeah. I have uh, a toy and oh, I want to play with it. And no, you can't play with it. And I cat. don't want to nap. And you cannot yes. rest. Yeah. <laughs> and I have no no respect for boundaries or personal space. And there is there is no there is no tone or number of no's that will get the questions to stop. Can can I play with this? This no. is true. Except can I play with this? No. Can I play with it now? Can I play with it? Yes, can I play with it now? <laughs> will you play it's with been it? Three with me? minutes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. So it's like a, a, a second motherhood for you. Second period of motherhood. Yes. But he also brings just so much soothing at the same time, you know, because he's so he wants to be up against me when, you know, I'm sleeping or when I'm working. And I've the only cats I've been around before, like if you moved you had to hold perfectly still. If a cat came inside in your lap, you had to hold perfectly still because if you move, the cat just gets up and runs away. I can't shove him away. <laughs> he just does not budge, which is perfect for me. So anyway, okay, moving on. Moving on. Chapter scenes and in-betweens, yes. So today I want to take a look at story through the eyes of structure. And normally when people use the term structure, in regards to story, it's referring to how the story is arranged. So like if you say story structure, the first thing that'll usually come to mind is like the three-act structure or something like that. So that's what comes to my mind anyway. I'm, I'm kind of just guessing it's the same for a lot of people. So I just want to be real clear from the get-go here that in this conversation, when we're talking about structure, we're not talking about that. In this conversation, I want to talk about like the actual literal physical hold in your hand structure like the way the story is showing up on the page and I want to do that through you know chapter scenes and everything that fits between the scenes right so at first glance this is really basic stuff and it's so basic that I can't even imagine that anyone spends much time talking about it it feels a little bit like when when I got copy editing notes back from a copy editor on I think it was the innocent and they they responded to a description of being lulled to sleep on a train by the rhythm of the wheels against the tracks with a note that was something like, is this an old fashioned train? Today's trains don't have wheels. And it, wheels on trains is like such a basic thing that it took me a second. <laughs> and and then I was like, um, do, 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 is my understanding of the world just like completely inside out and inverted? <laughs> like this is what? So I actually went to Google and started trying to find references that said, here are the parts of the train and it includes wheels. And I, I couldn't <laughs> because it was like such a, 
a basic thing <laughs> that is just kind of taking for granted that trains have wheels unless you're a copy editor who lives somewhere that trains apparently don't have wheels. I don't know. So anyway, it's that level of basic, right? And and if you've been following this podcast for a while, your storytelling skills are probably, well, not that basic. So why discuss this? Why talk about this like we're all the way back in kindergarten or writing kindergarten anyway? And the reason for that is that most of us, no matter how good we get at what we do, this act of getting that story out, getting it onto the page, it's always going to involve some form of struggle. And sometimes, sometimes the source of that struggle comes from not being real clear in your own head whether the part you're struggling with is part of a scene or something in between or not knowing if it should be part of a scene. And so the difficulty in not knowing what you're struggling with, that aspect of it, that aspect of storytelling, it actually isn't basic because we we can get lost in it sometimes. And so it's a good refresher to look to look at what it all is and how it actually looks when it's on the page. So for those who are experienced storytellers, it it can help to to clarify in your own head what it is you're actually looking at. And for those who are just starting out on their storytelling journey, Getting this sorted out as sort of a foundational framework can save you a lot of agony in the future. So the topic is chapter scenes and in-betweens, but one of these three is not like the other. Chapters do not belong in this discussion. <laughs> chapter, no, I'm giving you the answers right now. Oh. Chapters do not belong in this discussion. But because they're so often confused and conflated with scenes, I got to address that first and then remove them from the equation. So the reason why chapters don't belong in this discussion is because chapters are idea containers. Chapters are artificial boundaries created for the purpose of visually organizing and separating large chunks of written material into smaller, manageable and or distinct parts. So chapters really belong to the same discussion as paragraphs and sentences and even punctuation. A story can survive without chapters. It can survive without chapters in the same way a story can survive without paragraphs or even sentences. Like the words and all their meanings, that will still all be intact. It's just really, really difficult to read a single massive ongoing wall of running words, running text. So punctuation, sentences, paragraphs, section breaks, chapters, those all exist to support a coherent, intelligible, organized flow of information. So just as there's no rule about how long a paragraph has to be or what has to go inside it, there's no rule about how long a chapter has to be or what has to go inside it. You, you the author, you get to decide how big your chapters are. You get to decide what you put into them. If you want to write a story with no chapters, you have that option. If you want to visually separate your material by some method other than chapters, you can do that too. So regardless, 
a chapter's purpose is to aid in visually organizing and separating large chunks of written material into smaller manageable or distinct parts. And because of that, the more unrelated material you stuff into a single chapter and the longer your chapters run, the less thing, the less useful they become in serving their purpose. But it's still an organizational thing. It is containers. Scenes and in-betweens are something else entirely. So where chapters are idea containers, scenes are idea presentation. How you're choosing to relay the information, not what you're choosing to put that information in. Scenes are the ideas that go inside the containers. So just like there's no rule on how long a scene, how long a chapter should be or whatever, the same is kind of true for, the same is true for scenes. It is. And because of that, it's not unusual for a single chapter to hold just a single scene. And when that happens, the scene starts when the chapter starts and it ends when the chapter ends. And a new chapter also brings a new scene. And when this happens, it's really easy to, to see scene and chapter as being the same thing, but they're not. One is a container that holds and organizes the ideas. And the other is the ideas come to life. So with that out of the way, we can take chapters off the board and we can focus on scenes and in-betweens. So scenes are the backbone of story. Scenes are where almost all the good stuff happens. It's where the action takes place in real time and action in real time is where mental movies come from. Now, real time doesn't necessarily mean present tense. I mean, it, it can, but it doesn't have to be. So a lot of flashbacks will segue from present tense real time into past tense real time. And that's how you get a scene within a scene. And sometimes you even get scene within scene within scene. And you know you are in the hands of a master storyteller when your mental movie descends from present to past to deeper past. And then it just kind of rises again back into the present. And you never even notice what's just happened. That is what that's the power of scenes. And your mental movies just keeps going. So real time, that just means that the action is happening right there on the page. Real time is showing. So for a scene to be a scene, it, it requires a specific time, place, and space. Your character is grounded. They're there, interacting, talking, moving, character in motion, whatnot. And your audience should be able to visualize the setting, and your character should be firmly grounded in time, space, and place. It also, scenes also require beginning, middle, and end. Uh, but there's no rule about how long that needs to be. And it's usually, for, for a scene to really feel like a scene, because some scenes don't, and that's okay. We're just sort of defining it right here. But for a scene to really feel like a scene, for that mental movie to really kick into gear, it's usually going to be focused on a specific event or a specific sequence of events that moves the plot and the conflict and the character development forward. 
But when we distill all that down into its essence, a scene is like a continuous sequence of character action and dialogue that takes place in a specific time and place and is shown in real time. So if the action isn't being shown in real time, it's not a scene. And if it's not a scene, then it's the in-between. And the in-between is all the stuff inside a story that takes place between the scenes. So where scenes involve showing, the in-between consists of telling. And the literary world has done so much knuckle slapping over show versus tell that the word telling, as it pertains to writing, has a real negative connotation. It's almost impossible not to recoil from it. You know, you're telling, not showing, and ooh, bad. But that's because all that knuckle slapping over show versus tell, <laughs> show versus tell, it's failing to account for the notion that there are different types of telling. There's a good type of telling. It's an absolute, it's just absolutely necessary as story glue. And it it creates continue, continuity. <laughs> I can talk continuity and and it allows scenes to flow seamlessly from one to the next without feeling all herky-jerky or interruptive and it avoids having to show every mundane action in real time and then there's the bad kind of telling and that's the kind of telling that deprives readers of the ability to become part of the character's inner world it, an example of the bad kind of telling is when you tell your reader how a character feels about something that's happened instead of showing it through their actions or their words or their choices and their thoughts. You know, Bob got angry or Bob felt angry. You know, Tom yelled at Bob and Bob felt angry. But we, I mean, as an audience, we can intuit that if Tom yelled at Bob, Bob's not going to be happy about it. But just telling the reader Bob felt angry and didn't like that, it it deprives us of that sense of what's really going on in Bob's inner world. That's the bad kind of telling. But having to say, you know, Bob walked to the refrigerator, opened the refrigerator door, pulled out a all the making, you know, pulled out the cheese and the ham and the whatever to make himself a sandwich and sat down and ate a sandwich. That's a bad kind of showing. And it's so easily replaced by after lunch, blah, 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 right? So there is good telling. And the good telling is all the in-betweens between the showing, if it's done right. So for me personally, scenes are pretty straightforward. When I'm writing scenes, of course, you know, everything's a struggle when, when I write. But when I'm writing scenes, that struggle mostly comes from figuring out how to articulate what's happening in a way that allows the reader into the character's mind without it feeling clunky or tortured or, you know, especially when I'm dealing with characters who are doing deep analysis, building those logic ladders and whatnot, that is excruciating because it requires such clarity and decisiveness and finding the right words. But that's different than trying to figure out how to, you know, what happened 
happened or, you know, what exactly is taking place here? That's a, that's a different kind of struggle. And so for me, it's the in-between that causes me the most trouble. And I, I personally tend to think of the in-between as either narrative or transition. Now, others are going to have their own view or their own take on it. This is just what works for me. And so that's, I'm just talking about my process here. So to me, narrative is what provides information or background detail that the reader needs to know. And narr narrative can show up before scene, after scene, even within a scene, as part of a scene. But transition, that involves getting a character from here to there, or it recaps action that took place off page, and that only shows up before and after scenes. So if you have a chapter, a container, that has multiple scenes, the transitions are going to show up between the scenes and they're not going to be they're not going to be breaks. It's just the flow of information of here's what we're seeing in real time. And then we slip out of real time into a telling and a recap of what the character's doing and we get them from there. And then we transition into the next scene. So you'll see transitions there. You'll see them at the beginning of the chap, a beginning of chapters or scene breaks where you're um, trying to sort of ease the audience into the real time because things have happened in between the scenes that they need to know about. Transitions are where I struggle the most. Now, my writing style, my voice, it's one in which we're so close to the character's thoughts that the inner dialogue and the narrative, they often become one. And it, it can be difficult to distinguish what's what. So I personally consider inner dialogue to be part of the scene, not an in-between. But for authors who write from a more distant point of view, that inner dialogue might be closer to narrative. And it's not a judgment call. It's not like there's a better way or worse way to do it. It's just the point in highlighting the difference is so that you yourself, you, you understand your own voice, so you know what's what on the page, that when you hit a spot that's not reading right, you have enough insight to recognize what the source of the problem might be. Like, are you dealing with scene material, and are you failing to go deep enough in showing? Like, are you missing detail? Are you missing description? Are you missing a connection between the character and what's happening on the page. Are there emotional beats that need to be filled in, which is all what would happen in scene material? Or are you dealing with in-between material, which is more of a telling, and you're muddying it by accidentally introducing information or detail that's unnecessary for that particular moment? Being able to recognize your own voice and what is what can be really helpful in figuring out where where the root of the problem might be. Because if you're all focused on, oh, I need to have more emotional beats and, and you know, I need to tie the character's thoughts to these particular actions, but you aren't actually writing in real time, you're going to be spending all this time and energy on, on the wrong thing. So that's why I'm highlighting all of this and why it's important to sort of be able to tell, am I dealing with a scene? Is this actually happening in real time? Or am I dealing with a transition? Or am I dealing with narrative? 
because each one of those is treated slightly differently. And you just save yourself a lot of agony if you can recognize right off the bat what it is you're dealing with. And then you can focus your time and energy, mental energy on that. So I know like when we talk about this type of stuff, it can be a little frustrating when you don't have examples to work with. And I was reading a book recently that had some pretty fun examples in it. And it not only works for this, but it also ties us back in to some previous episodes we talked about omniscient point of view. I was joking with Steve before we started recording. Every time the word omniscient comes up, I want to say omnipotent. <laughs> so I stumble, <laughs> stumble over it a lot. But this, so what what happened was um I was I was cleaning it, going through my um Kindle library. Uh, I don't read a ton of ebooks, but because I'm a Prime member, I'm very ashamed to admit that um, Prime allows you to have free books. Like uh, you can catch books that are being published. Usually, they're they're from the Amazon publishing subsidiaries, and it's part of their promotional tool for the authors. If you get enough readers reading and putting um, reviews and ratings on them, then it boosts the visibility of those books. So it's kind of Amazon's, I guess, answer to the way publishers give away ARCs and, you know, advanced reading copies or whatever, except these are actually fully finished stories. So I, I don't really have a lot of time to read right now, but in my mind, there will come a time in my life where I have nothing but time and I'm going to need books to read. So every every month without fail, I will go download what I, whatever I'm allowed to have because, you know, I'm just collecting them for one day. And so after a while, it just gets to be a bit much. So I was going through my Kindle and just kind of trying to organize them, you know, into, you know, which ones I want to read sooner or whatever. And I stumbled across some books that I must have gotten like, I don't know, 10 or more years ago because they're kids books and I got them for my kids, obviously. And so I opened up this one called The Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls. And the reason why I opened this this kid's book is because that's about the max my intellectual level can handle for reading. Like I'm really struggling with my brain right now and it can handle a a middle grade book. So I was like, fine, that's what I read. So I'll read something and just kind of keep my my reading skills working, right? And the first thing I noticed in this book was, it's incredibly well written, incredibly well written, but also it's written in the omniscient point of view. And also it doesn't have a lot of scenes. And you would think that with scenes being the building block of a book that it wouldn't work, but it does work. And so what I wanted to do is just read a little bit from the opening from this story so you can get a sense of the voice and and the content. And then I will move to just one other section, small, small section in the book to give an example of what it looks like when you're dealing, you're switching from narrative to real time and how a scene can sometimes be as small as just a couple of sentences. Now, I'm not saying that this is the ideal way to write a story, but it works very, very well for this particular kind of story. I would suggest that it is more challenging to write a compelling story in the omniscient point of view, specifically because of jumping in and out of scenes 
it's incredibly challenging. I'm not sure that I could do it. I my style of writing is very scene intense. I mostly scenes with transitions before a chapter before a scene to catch up on everything that we've missed in between. Very, very different writing style, which may be why I connect with this because it doesn't feel like work to read it. But bear with me here. It's a little bit much, but I just, I'm loving this and I and I want to share it. So the book is called The Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls. I've only read several chapters. I, I can't read a lot in any one sitting, but what I've read so far is incredibly enjoyable. I have no idea what this book is about. I don't read the synopsis. I've learned don't read synopsis, just go into it because that's how I enjoy reading. Much like I enjoy puzzles, I don't look at the picture. I just follow the puzzle pieces. So that's what I do on the page as well. So I have no idea how it ends. I have no idea what it's about. I just know that I'm digging this author's writing style and it's omniscient. And it's a really good example of what material looks like when it's telling versus showing and how you can still convey so much if you know what you're doing, which this author clearly does. So here's how this starts. When Victoria Wright was 12 years old, she had precisely one friend. In fact, he was the only friend she had ever had. His name was Lawrence Pruitt. And on Tuesday, October 11th of the year Victoria and Lawrence were 12 years old, 12 years old, Lawrence disappeared. Victoria and Lawrence became friends shortly after Lawrence's first gray hairs appeared. They were both nine years old and in fourth grade. Thick and shining, Lawrence's gray hair sprouted out from between his black normal hairs and made him look like a skunk. Everyone made fun of Lawrence for this, and really, Victoria couldn't blame them. Victoria decided that these hairs were cosmic punishment for Lawrence's inability to tuck in his shirt properly, use a comb, pay attention in class. He preferred to doodle instead of take notes and do anything but play his wretched piano. Not that Lawrence was bad at piano. In fact, he was very good. But Victoria had always thought it an incredible waste of time. After a few weeks of watching Lawrence's gray hair sprout thicker and thicker and hearing everyone's snickers, Victoria put aside her general dislike of socializing with, well, anyone, and decided that Lawrence would be her personal project. Obviously, the boy needed help, and Victoria prided herself on telling people what to do with themselves. Sacrificing her valuable time to fix Lawrence could be a gift to the community of Belleville. How charitable of you, Victoria, people would say, and beam at her, and wish their children could be like her. So at lunch one day, Victoria marched from her lonely table to Lawrence's lonely table and said, Hello, Lawrence. I'm Victoria. We're going to be friends now. Victoria almost shook Lawrence's hand, but then thought better of it because she feared he might very well be infested with lice or something. Instead, she sat down and opened her milk carton. And when Lawrence looked at her through his skunkish hair and said, I don't really want to be your friend, Victoria said, well, that's too bad for you. Over the years, Victoria pushed herself into Lawrence's life and was pushed out of it when he decided that enough was enough and then pushed herself back in. And finally, they were really, truly friends in an odd sort of way. So that's how the book starts. And almost everything that I just read is in between. The only part of this that I would really consider a scene is the part that says, so at lunch one day, Victoria marched her lonely, marched from her lonely table to Lawrence's lonely table and said, hello, Lawrence, I'm Victoria, we're going to be friends now. And it continues until Lawrence says, 
you know, I don't really want to be your friend. And Victoria said, well, that's too bad for you. All of that takes place in real time. Nothing else in this scene takes place. Nothing else in this on the page takes place in real time. It's not a scene. It's in between. But it's told and articulated so well that it feels like scene. And it is just incredible characterization. In just the that those few paragraphs, we have learned so much about Victoria, and we've learned a bit about Lawrence and about their relationship. And with, with so little real-time interaction, these characters, these two children, have already begun to breathe and come alive as if we can see them and as if there's someone we might know or wish we didn't. Either way, it is just absolutely genius omniscient point of view storytelling i am in awe so that was sort of a larger chunk and now i want to read just a small i'm just grabbing this from the middle of a chapter and it it's like not even a full page a kindle size large print page whatever so it it starts in the middle of an actual real-time scene. And it says, with the good morning said, Mrs. Wright flipped another page in her magazine and Mr. Wright returned to his newspaper. To them, everything was just as it should be in the Wright house. Flushing with shame, Victoria returned to thoughts of the bee in music class. She thought about it so much that she couldn't finish her breakfast and excused herself despite Beatrice's protest. Grabbing her book bag from the coat closet, she rushed out the front door. Like every other street in Belleville, Sylvie Place boasted cobbled walks, large trees, tall hedges, lampposts, and iron gates. So that's, I'm going to stop there. So when we started with, with the good morning said, Mrs. Wright flipped another page in the magazine, that is real time. That's seen. And then we get, she turned, Mr. Wright returns to his newspaper and we get to them, everything was just as it should be in the Wright house. So that sentence to them, everything was just as it should be in the right house, that I, I, I'm sort of questioning, like, is that inner dialogue or is that narrative? If it, if it had taken place inside a scene in which we were close up inside a character's point of view or even distant, just that we had a real clear character point of view and we weren't in the omniscient point of view. I would absolutely say that that was inner dialogue and therefore it was part of the scene and the scene was not interrupted. But in this instance, I'm not actually sure. That might be an in-between. Does it matter? No, not to me as the audience. But if I was the one who was writing this story and if I was struggling with that particular place in the story, it would matter a whole heck of a lot because that would help me figure out what needed to get cut, what needed to get reworded, what could be moved to a different place, was it actually necessary or not. All of those are decisions that you're making constantly as a writer. And when you know what you're dealing with, seen or in between, it can really help when you're not sure what to do. Like It can help aid in the decisiveness of it. So we have that small little interruption possibly, or it could be part of the scene, depending on which viewpoint you take. We return to Victoria in real time. She grabs her book bag. She rushes out the front door. And then we're out of the scene and we're back into 
the omniscient point of view, which in this case is transition, but it's transition with description. So maybe it's narrative, right? Because we're describing the streets and whatnot. So whether it was narrative or um, transition would depend entirely on you as the author, what you're writing, your writing style and such. So the, the goal in this isn't to analyze it and put a label on everything. It's to show how quickly material can transition from scene to in-between, scene to in-between. And when it's done well, the audience, even somebody who dissects this stuff for, I guess, a living, I don't know. Um, it, I can't tell. I, I, I would have to really think about, is this in-between part narrative? Is it transition? And how would I handle it? Is whatever to me as a reader, an audience, I don't care. But where it does matter is when you're the one creating it and you run into trouble. So anyway, that's all that I had on this subject. And I know that on the surface it does seem pretty pretty basic, but it's one of those things that if you don't have that basic, if you're not grounded in the basics, you can run into trouble later. So I thought this is fun. We should talk about that. And that's all I have on it. And that's all we have. That this book sounds quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Isn't it just it so like, it's it sounds so like fun. fun? Yeah. So I have no idea what it's about, but there's something something going on that's not quite right. I've gotten to that part. A little spooky. So there's some something. I did I did read the uh, synopsis for it. And yes, it does. Don't tell me. Don't don't tell me. It does the synopsis does include words. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a question for you. Yes. We read from time to time where if you want to sell books, you need to write for an audience that reads at such and such a level. And I can't remember what that is, but it's always shockingly low to me, um, like the reading level, grade level kind of thing. Like it, it's not like, it, you know, you don't want to write for uh, graduate level. PhDs. PhD. Yeah. 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 So you want to write for, yeah. I think it's somewhere in the like, I don't know, seventh to ninth grade. Hopefully, uh, re listeners will know and and can let us know in the in the group in the Facebook group. But it's interesting to me. This book, I I checked at Amazon. It's written for ages like nine to twelve, something like that. I wonder okay. how much below that is of the target reading age that authors want to hit, because it it, it was really appealing. What you read, okay. the story was appealing. Okay, so. This this may possibly be its own subject. I don't know. But I think it's really important in answering that question to differentiate between content and reading level, I guess. Because the content, I, I personally believe that this book is written um, writing level wise, like the, the structure and the storytelling. This is adult level. It's just that the content of the book is children, and that's what makes it middle grade. And where my mind goes in, in connecting those thoughts are to this, the Janet Ivanovich, Stephanie Plum novels. Now, it's been a long time since I've read one of those books, but the writing style in this book, Omniscient Viewpoint Decide, reminds me a lot of the Stephanie Plum the the sentence structure, the sort of breezy lightheartedness of it all, the 
the word choices that are sort of witty and funny, but still effectively communicate what needs to be told. All of that is very, very similar, as I recall. I could be wrong. I haven't read one of those books in a long time. And I remember reading a book that about writing from Janet Ivanovich. I think it's called How I Write or something along those lines. And what stood out to me the most from that entire book was that no matter how easy the words seemed to come on the page, it took a lot of work to get them there. And I have sitting right in front of me, pinned the corkboard right on the other side of my computer screen here, a quote by Nathaniel Hawthorne that says, easy reading is damn hard writing. And this little bit that we've read from this book here is sort of exemplar of that, as are the Stephanie Plum novels. You know, content aside, whether you enjoy the stories, whether you think the plot deserves the the page that it gets, the you know, the print on the page, that's a, a separate separate discussion. To have that level of clean writing, that is very adult. It is treating the material with the same respect, material for children, content for children with the same respect as content for adults. So I think that it's important to separate the two concepts, the content and the quality of the storytelling and the writing. And I find that and this is me, and I come from this, from a very sort of judgmental, critical point of view, because this is all I do day in and day out. I find that a lot of stories that people might think they are writing for a lower grade level, even though they're adult stories, it's not the content there is a a cheat or a a lesser respect for the words so you can you can write very very high level craft wise using simpler language as this book does but don't mistake that for writing for a younger audience i don't know if i'm making sense here you're the, the level of craft is not the same thing as the content. And you can write craft-wise using very simple language for a very adult audience because the content is adult, but the craft is still amazing. Or you can write a low level of craft for an adult audience and the content is exactly the same, but the craft is not amazing. So just be careful not to conflate the two. That's all, all I'm getting at. So that is it uh, for this week's show. We appreciate you guys being with us again this week. And uh, we will be back with you again next week. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week. <laughs>